Well, Super Bowl 57 kicks off in approximately 11,970 minutes. <laughs> the two teams facing off this year, the Philadelphia Eagles and the Kansas City Chiefs, over a total of 17 games that they've already played this year, have scored a combined total of 120 touchdowns. They've caught a total of 785 passes, and they've rushed for a total of 2,514 yards. Now, even if you don't know anything about what that means, we can all agree that it it amounts to an incredible amount of effort. It amounts to dedication and persistence to get them to the big game next Sunday. And I didn't even Google metrics about how many hours they spend in the gym or at practice. I couldn't count how many missed kids' birthdays, delayed vacations, or even how many nights away from home that the players have inevitably given in their pursuit of next Sunday. But they lay all of that down willingly for a chance to get to Arizona. Now let me ask you, what do you think that these players are doing over the next 11,969 minutes? You think they're lazily sleeping in? You think maybe they're staying out too late? Maybe they think now, now is the time that I'll take this vacation. No. Absolutely not. And why? Because they're sold out to the cause. Because they're in the Super Bowl and they're in it to win it. They lay aside something good to get something better. And let me show you an even better example of what this looks like this morning in 1 Corinthians. So the Apostle Paul in this section of the letter, he's been answering questions brought to him by the Corinthians. And really the questions contemplated by Paul in chapter 7, 8, and 9, while very different in subject matter, they all deal with a very similar theme. As a Christian, what am I okay to do? What are my freedoms, or what we might call our Christian liberties? And as Paul unwrapped these misaligned ideas that the Corinthian Christians had about their freedom around marriage and their freedom to eat temple meat, we saw that Paul attacked these questions by going directly to the heart of them. But here, in chapter 9, Paul's going to take the larger issue of laying aside Christian liberty for no other reason than to advance the gospel to the glory of God. So if you come out of our preaching in chapter 7, 8, and 9, knowing only what to do concerning marriage or meat, sacrifice to idols, but nothing more, then you really haven't learned anything. If, on the other hand, we leave these chapters with an awareness of how we can rightly exercise Christian liberty, then we'll be good with not just how to think rightly about our horizontal relationships with others, but we'll, we'll know how to fully win victories for Christ. This message is about laying it all aside for the gospel. It's about laying aside something good to get something better. So Paul starts in our verses by saying, listen, I know all about rights. I've let a few of mine own go. Let's look at them together in chapter 9, verse 1 of Corinthians, reading verses 1 through 11. You can find that on page 956 in the blue Bibles in front of you. Turn with me as we read. Paul begins by asking, Am I not free? Am I not an apostle? Have I not seen Jesus our Lord? 
Are not you my workmanship in the Lord? If to others I'm not an apostle, at least I am to you. For you are the seal of my apostleship in the Lord. This is my defense to those who would examine me. Do we not have a right to eat and drink? Do we not have the right to take along a believing wife, as do the other apostles and the brothers of the Lord and Cephas? Or is it only Barnabas and I who have no right to refrain from working for a living? Who serves as a soldier at his own expense? Who plants a vineyard without eating any of its fruit? Or who tends a flock without getting some of the milk? Do I say these things on human authority? Does not the law say the same? For it is written in the law of Moses, you shall not muzzle an ox while it treads out the grain. Is it for the oxen that God is concerned? Does he not certainly speak for our sake? It was written for our sake because the plowman should plow in hope and the thresher thresh in hope of sharing the crop. If we have sown spiritual things among you, is it too much if we reap material things from you? All right, it sounds right away like Paul's defending himself. And he does that with four rhetorical questions. First, he asks, am I not free? Am I not an apostle? He's asking the church to consider his own rights and his own privileges as an apostle. Was Paul not free to enjoy the Christian liberty like the rest of the church would? And of course, the answer is rhetorically and certainly yes. He would have had all the freedoms anyone else would have had as a Christian. And more than that, Paul says, am I not an apostle? Which would mean, do I not even have greater liberties, even greater privileges than, say, someone who isn't an apostle? You see, Paul says, look, I've seen Jesus Christ, which is clearly the first requisite needed of an apostle. And next he says to the Christians, are you, Corinthian church, are you not a sign of my work in the Lord? You know, this church was founded out of nothing. When Paul walked into Corinth, there was nothing there even resembling Christ's church. But when he left, he left a sizable church in one of the most immoral epicenters in the world at this time. So he says to them, look, you are my seal of apostleship. The proof's in the pudding, guys. Just look at the Corinthian church. I founded it. I started it. You are the seal of my apostleship. If anybody should know it, it's you. You see, Paul takes this opportunity to establish that he's an apostle and has certain privileges that were due him. And he's going to show us how he did not take full advantage of the very things he had a right to. Because he had love for the church. And he was obligated to show that love by not burdening them. But before Paul can use his own example to teach the church, he must first show why he chose not to do some of the things he was free to do. Including the right to be financially supported. So Paul then makes a defense. He says, all right, it's my turn to be the lawyer. I'm going to go hard on redirect, and I'm going to put up a world-class defense. Paul says, didn't I have the right to eat and drink at your expense? Should not you, the Corinthian church, have been supporting me in my ministry? Obviously, Paul's referring to the circumstances in which he founded the Corinthian church. You see, back then, he lived and he worked amongst the Corinthians as a tent builder. When he moved into Corinth, he decided to forego certain rights and privileges that he had as an apostle, setting aside his own ease, his own comfort, to work to financially support himself. And it was all the more to be effective in his ministry in that city. 
So Paul refused the material support. He continues saying, did I not have right to bring along a believing wife and have her supported? You might recall, as we covered in chapter 7, that Paul chose to forego marriage as a way of improving his opportunity in the ministry. But now he asks a legitimate question. Didn't I have a right to those things? Well, of course Paul had the right to those things. He had the right not to marry. And when he chose to do otherwise, you cannot say that it somehow diminished his authority. Now, Paul now gives us reasons why supporting ministers is an obligation of the church. Now, let me be clear. This is not the main point or main section of Paul's uh, letter here. But Paul is very careful to address this while defending his choice not to receive support. Paul is saying that this was my choice and it was a free exercising of my liberty. A church should want to support a minister. And it's okay for a minister to decline to accept it. It's a liberty. And to do this, Paul uses three examples from real life to prove the point that providing support is important and good for those in ministry. The first example was that of a soldier. Military service to country is a compact with the government. It says the soldier will do everything up to and including laying down their life in service. And in return, the government will provide all the support to meet the service member's needs so that they can dedicate time and energy, efforts, and maybe even their life to support the cause. You wouldn't expect the soldier who's using his full-time capacity to serve in defense of his country to have to go out and have a side hustle to make ends meet. What kind of national defense would we get out of that? The second example is that of a farmer with a vineyard. Paul describes a farmer who's raising grapes. Think about this. A vineyard owner would likely never think about going to Hannaford to buy grapes. He's got those right in front of him. They'd expect to be able to attain what they need from what they're raising. And then finally, a shepherd. A herdsman would never purchase milk in the like fashion. They would obtain the milk from their own flock. They have it amongst their sheep. So not wanting to rest on those three examples, Paul then turns to a scriptural backing. He proclaims his teaching comes from God's word, specifically from Deuteronomy 25.4. Now there we'll find it written that a farmer in Israel may not muzzle his ox while that ox is threshing. Now, not many of you have oxen. Actually, maybe Kevin Wilcox does. Kevin, do you have ox? No. Okay. (laughs) Even if he had one, he likely probably wouldn't do much threshing. So let me help us understand this context. Threshing is how the people of Israel separated grain seeds from the stock and husk of the, the rest of the plant. They did this by taking a big, heavy animal like an ox and tying it to a pole leading it in a circle, around and around. All the while, the ox would be stomping and walking, crushing the weaker parts of the grain, but leaving behind the seeds. See, the seeds were strong enough to withstand the stomping hoof of the ox, but everything else wasn't. So after it was winnowed, you ended up with a large pile of seed after this process. Now, if the ox did this long enough, as the saying goes, it got hungry as an ox. So to keep the ox energized for work... They allowed the ox to bend down and eat some of the grain. Well, what if a foolish farmer might try and stop it, so muzzle it? What happens if you do that? Well, at some point, the ox doesn't work anymore. It's too tired. It's too weak. And the irony of that, obviously, is that what the farmer wanted, he lost. 
by his greedy and foolish mentality. That's why in the law, the Lord commanded the sons of Israel to not muzzle their oxen if their oxen were threshing. Now, Paul says here that the gospel workers are like that ox. They can expect to give their work in the hope of receiving some benefit in return. It's not a burden or foolish if they share in it. It's their right, ordained and decreed by God. And more than just the right, Paul says in verse 11, it's a, it's a, he's saying it's to our benefit. You see, a very small amount of grain was given to the ox to make a large amount for the people to thrive upon. Similarly, to support our people in ministry, whether it be here in RGC or to Derek and Elizabeth Bass at Tyndale in the Netherlands, to SRL in South America or to Zion Ministries in Northern India, what we give is overall tiny in comparison to the fruit it produces for the kingdom. It's a fantastic bargain when you think of it in that sense. Paul then makes this application to himself in verse 11. He says, if he worked to produce spiritual benefit in the Corinthian church, then certainly he should have a right to receive a modest material response from them. And if others share in this rightful claim on the Corinthians, well, then Paul would even more. He's establishing here that he has something good, but he lays it down for something better. Now to point two in our outline there in your, your bulletins, if you follow along with me, we're going to read verses 12 through 15. If others share this rightful claim on you, do we not even more? Nevertheless, we have not made use of this right, but we endure anything rather than to put an obstacle in the way of the gospel of Christ. Do you not know that those who are employed in the temple service get their food from the temple? And those who serve at the altar share in the sacrificial offerings? In the same way, the Lord commanded that those who proclaim the gospel should get their living by the gospel. But I have made no use of those rights, nor am I writing these things to secure any such provision. For I would rather die than have anyone deprive me of my ground for boasting. Well, Paul says, look, if others have a right to some of your support, we would too. And then in verse 12, he says, we chose not to take that support despite having every right and more. He gives us a hint as to why here. Paul says he chose that path because they didn't want to be a hindrance to the mission of the gospel. Now, we don't know exactly how this removed an obstacle, but we do know that Paul set aside his rights out of love. And then in verses 13 and 14, Paul reiterates once again, service to God is an honorable profession, and it carries with it a natural expectation that those who benefit from service must support those who work for them. And we finish in verse 15 where Paul reminds the church that he never made use of these things. He purposely left money on the table. The choice to cease working was his privilege and his liberty. You know, it's no secret that it's a shared desire for us here at RGC to one day plant or revitalize a church. Now, only the Lord knows how that will play out, but it might mean that support for whoever ministers to this new church might come from us, the mother church. Now, will it always be that way? I really hope not. I pray not. But a church planted in some remote, remote parts of Vermont or elsewhere in New England, it just might not have the financial means to fully fund and support a minister. And so the mother church might continue to support that work, even for the long haul. And so, that's why we here at RGC, we put money aside now for this possibility. We as a church should have a heart that gladly follows God's command. We want to lay aside something good now to get something better. 
Paul does seem to have some slight concern at this point, as he's sending all this criticism their way, that the Corinthians might read this and think, whoa, okay, okay, payment is all that important to you. We'll give you some money. We'll start paying you up. He heads that off by saying in verse 15 that he's not writing for their support now. He says, I don't want you to turn around now and start giving the money that I didn't take before. That's not my point. My point is that I want to be able to boast about this. And he's not talking about a boast to people or a boast in some worldly sense. No, he's talking about it in a very specific spiritual sense. And you can get a sense of how important this was to Paul as a principal in his last words in verse 15. He said, I would rather die than have someone deprive me of this boast. His boast wasn't that he didn't just preach the gospel or that he didn't take money for simply the sake of not taking the money. The boast was clear as he knew he was going to be rewarded in the kingdom. And he didn't want to lose that reward. His boast was that he gave aside something good in order to get something better. Paul explains in verse 16, uh, we're going to read through 23. He says, For if I preach the gospel, that gives me no ground for boasting. For necessity it is laid upon me. Woe to me if I do not preach the gospel. For if I do this of my own will, I have a reward. But if not of my own will, I'm still entrusted with a stewardship. What then is my reward? That in my preaching I may present the gospel free of charge, so as to not make full use of my right in the gospel. For though I am free from all, I have made myself a servant to all, that I might win more of them. To the Jews I became as a Jew in order to win the Jews. To those under the law I became as one under the law, though not myself being under the law that I might win those under the law. To those outside the law, I became as one outside the law, not being outside the law of God, but under the law of Christ, that I might win those outside the law. To the weak, I became weak, that I might win the weak. I've become all things to all people, that by all means I might save some. I do it all for the sake of the gospel that I may share with them in its blessings. Paul starts here explaining that he doesn't just boast because he preaches the gospel. No, he says, I've got to preach. That's not even a choice for me. It was something God called him to. It was something that he had to do. You know, Paul wasn't a seeker of fame and fortune. His epistles make that abundantly clear. He didn't stick his neck out for the thrill of it. He wasn't moving a missional ministry across continents because he was a fan of the sound of his own voice or looking to somehow increase his Instagram followers. No, Paul was called by God to preach, and he was compelled to. He was obligated to fulfill God's command. But notice in verse 16, he said, If I preach the gospel, that gives me no ground for boasting, for necessity it is laid upon me. You see, proclaiming the gospel is what God commanded and requires of him. So if Paul bragged about this, It would be just like an employee bragging to their boss about how they show up for work every day. Or asking their employer, hey, you know, I probably deserve a raise because I show up on time. What would the employer say in this situation? He'd probably say, you know, that kind of just goes with the job. Matter of fact, if you don't do that, I'm probably going to fire you. It's not a thing to simply brag about fulfilling our obligations. And you see, that means Paul's boast isn't that he took his God-given mission to advance the gospel. It's that he took that mission and he went above and beyond his obligation. 
by sacrificing his liberties, his rights to accomplish it. And so he fully unveils his boast. He says his boast is that when I preach the gospel, I may present the gospel of Christ without charge, so as to not make full use of my right in the gospel. I go above and beyond my call to God's glory. I lay it all on the line. I lay aside something good to get something better. Isn't that great? RGC, that's great. Let me say it again for you. Paul says, you know what my boast is? That I preach for nothing. That's why I supported myself, and that's my boast. Not that I preach the gospel, but that I do it without charge and willingly. I do it out of my own free choice. Friends, let me just point out. We may not ever be faced with the same decision that Paul made right here. I mean, most of us in this room will never be faced with the same decision that Paul had to make. Do I take money for preaching the gospel or do I not? But friends, what each of us does have is a critical question to answer. What rights are we willing to sacrifice for the cause of peace, for the sake of the advancement of Christ's church? Is there some liberty? Is there some right that you have right now in Christ that you would lay down and then make it your boast? Paul knows that this act of love earns him a reward, and what he's saying is that this reward is coming from his willingness to set aside personal liberties. He did know how to show love to the Corinthians, and he did so in the hope of getting greater rewards through a more effective ministry there for the advance of the gospel, and so sharing the good news might save some to the glory of God. You see, Paul was free to do whatever he wanted. He says in verse 19, I'm free from all men. But he didn't use that freedom in some sort of self-indulgent way. He used that freedom to serve and to bring more people to Jesus Christ. He says, listen, when I hang around with the Jews, I keep the Jewish law and I keep kosher because I've become as a Jew. And then he says, listen, when I'm with the Gentiles, I'm not keeping and observing the Jewish customs. That doesn't matter to them. I'll become all things to all men that I might by all means save some. He does this to create every opportunity he can to proclaim the good news to everyone that Christ died for the sins of those who would hear his call and follow him. Friends, can we say that we're quick to do the same? Maybe you're a natural homebody. Would you be willing to purposely set aside that preference and attend all those social events just so you can witness and fellowship to others? Maybe you're a natural extrovert, and well, you you just got a lot to say. (laughs) Would you purposely take a back seat at home group and let others who are on the quiet side have an opportunity to share? Maybe your family operates on the exact opposite wavelength as another family. Do you set aside your comfort for a controlled home and invite over that family with the rambunctious kiddos for a chance to build that relationship? Or maybe you are that family that thrives in chaos. Are you willing to reign in the chaos just a little bit in order to better connect with that family and build that relationship? Maybe you've got a friend that's been on your heart and they're outdoorsy and the best way to reach them is probably doing what they like, but that's going to mean on a day like today, you're going cross-country skiing. Would you give up your own comfort of a warm fireplace? In the, opportunity, in the hopes that the opportunity opens up to share the gospel. <laughs> and maybe there's just someone you flat out don't like. Maybe there are reasons why you don't. 
Would you be quick to lay that all aside if it meant interacting with them to accomplish a gospel conversation? And in turn, who knows? Maybe heal that relationship. Brothers and sisters, what I'm asking is, can you lay aside something good to get something far, far better? Are you willing to adjust your lifestyle for the gospel? How are you willing to deny yourself so that Jesus might be better proclaimed? And now please never think that Paul here is saying that in any way he detracted from his gospel message or that he changed his doctrine to appeal to different groups. That's not it at all. What Paul did was he laid aside his Christian liberties at times and in doing so changed his behavior and his manner of approach. But Paul says here that he will come to anyone in any way so that he can give them the gospel. You know, Paul seemingly was only willing to offend people over the gospel. I love that. I think it's sad when we see people, or even worse, entire churches, that are willing to offend people over things other than the gospel. Especially things like a political perspective. Or maybe over our freedom to homeschool or not. Maybe it's about how they dress. Or something else. Whatever issue of conscience that might come along. As a Christian and as a church, our main interest can't be how we think about these, these matters. These matters of school choice or you know, third-tier issues. Our main interest has to be the gospel. Paul found things that he was free to adjust, and he adjusted them to meet his gospel mission. But there were things he couldn't, and the gospel was chief among them. And so, as a follower of Christ, the only thing I want to offend people over is the gospel of Jesus Christ. And if they're offended by that, I will pray for them. But I won't neglect sharing the good news of Christ crucified or alter that message to suit them. And Paul finishes here explaining that he lays his rights aside for the sake of his own soul. Reading verses 24 through 27. Do you not know that in a race all the runners run? But only one receives the prize. So run that you may obtain it. Every athlete exercises self-control in all things. They do it to receive a perishable wreath, but we an imperishable. So I do not run aimlessly. I do not box as one beating the air. I discipline my body and I keep it under control. Lest after preaching to others, I myself should be disqualified. Now remember the context here. Paul's speaking about laying down your rights for something higher, for something better. You know who's got to do this all the time? It's an athlete. Think about gold medal Olympians or even the football players that I referenced at the start. They're preparing right now for Sunday. They constantly sacrificed hard-earned rights for the good of their goal. And think about it. Who has a better right to eat whatever junk food they might want? Is it me, the guy who's lucky to get his 10,000 steps a day in? Or is it that athlete who burns twice those calories before I even wake up in the morning? And who deserves a day off to do nothing more than a pro athlete that trains seven days a week? Isn't it obvious that they have those rights more than, say, I do? So they have this right, but do they exercise it? No, of course not. If they did, they wouldn't be able to compete as well. So the athlete is willing to lay aside their rights for the sake of victory. Are you willing to do the same? And Paul, as he writes this, he he invokes a ton of examples of athletics. He says, I run, I box. 
Paul says, listen, just like a professional athlete, when I run, I run with a purpose. When I fight, when I box, I'm not just showing off, just strutting around, beating the air. I'm not just shadow boxing. I'm, I'm, I'm in a fight. I'm serious about it. Because this isn't about an imperishable wreath as a prize. I'm sorry, a perishable wreath as a prize. It's about an imperishable. This isn't a trophy that will tarnish and fade. It's about eternal life. It's about living in the glory of God. He tells the Corinthian church, I'm running in such a way that I can obtain it. I'm competing as an athlete who wants to win. The prize Paul's talking about winning in regards to him his reward is due him as a faithful servant. This is the commendation of God that Paul mentioned back to us in chapter 4, verse 5. Paul encourages us, though, all here to live with gospel urgency, to discipline ourselves so that we can obtain a prize. Paul says we'll go nowhere unless we put our lazy, self-interested selves on a path to gospel victory. He says we'll never win unless we put in some dedication. And we need to know that if we want to achieve something, it's going to cost us something. There's going to be some investment involved. Do you think Christians today are under-emphasizing the importance of concerning ourselves with our eternal rewards, with pleasing God? I think there's a pull to simply overemphasize our salvation as something like having an eternal life insurance policy. Like we're getting in. We're in the game. I've put on the jersey. I'm on Christ's team, so that's got to be good enough. I find myself drifting that way sometimes, and I certainly don't talk about my efforts in the gospel with the same fervor that Paul does. The inescapable reality, as hard as we might try and escape it, is that we're all running a race. The life we lead while waiting to reach Christ and our Christian walk through life, it's a race toward glory. But we should run this race as there's no silver or bronze or any other metal other than gold. We should live with an urgency, pressing on to win because there's no Christian participation trophy. And that's why Paul commands the church to run the race in such a way as though they'll win. He's talking about coming in first, about getting the prize. And please don't misunderstand me. In Christian life, we're not competing somehow once against another for a prize. That's not it. You can't apply this analogy that way. What we are competing against is our own opportunities. In a sense, we're racing against ourselves. So rest assured, I promise you, God will give us all ample opportunity to lay down our rights, our preferences, our comfort to pursue glorifying him. What will you choose How will you choose to deny yourself for Christ's sake? How will you pursue gospel advance, even though it's going to cost you? So the only question for you is, how many of these opportunities are you going to take advantage of? How many instances will we give up something good to get something better? And as you think of these questions, let me just give you a a beautiful piece of uh, scripture. Hebrews 12, verse 1. Therefore, since we're surrounded by so great a cloud of witness, this cloud of witness, by the way, is the people who've already finished their race now cheering us on, let us also lay aside every weight and sing sin which clings so closely, and let us run with endurance the race that is before us, looking to Jesus, 
the founder and protector of our faith, who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross, despising the shame, and is seated at the right hand of the throne of God. Praise God. Jesus finished the race, and he's the pace setter. He's the time to beat. So we should be training and growing ourselves to run more and more like him. And as we do, Jesus has led a whole host of witnesses who are cheering us on to victory. So run as Christ, friends. Run to win, brothers and sisters. Now to my friends here today who are outside of Christ. I love you too much not to tell you how this applies to you as well. As much as you might think, okay, okay, I'll just, I'm just going to spectate this race. I'll sit here at RGC, and I'll listen to the gospel, but that's not for me. I'm not going to respond. I'll watch the Christian life work out. I'll even take part in Christian activities, but, but I'm not going to compete. Friends, you're deceiving yourself. Whether or not you know it, you're in this race also. You might think you can sit and watch from the outside, but friends, you are competing. The starting pistol has fired. You just haven't left the starting block. You just aren't running. And friends, by not running this race, you can count on no triumphant victory. Your finish line has no confetti, no celebration. The end of your race is eternal separation from God and an eternity of torment and despair. That's why Paul says in verse 27, I discipline my body, I work hard, I bring it into subjection, lest when I've preached others that I should become disqualified. Paul knows he's competing. That's why he says, lest I should be disqualified. Paul says, no, I don't want to come up short. Me not finishing the Christian race means I'm not destined for glory, but for despair. Everyone who fails to finish this race victoriously will be condemned. And there's no Super Bowl post-game show if there isn't a kickoff and all four quarters played. No race is finished if it isn't started and run. So what do you do, friends? If you find yourself hearing this today and you feel the sense of urgency that Paul meant for you to feel, if you feel like it's past time for you to leave the starting block and run toward the finish line, what do you do? Friends, so easy. Just first put on the jersey. Let Jesus into your heart and follow him into the game. Lay down your life and follow him. Lay aside something good and go get something better. Run to Christ. So friends, this week, last week, we're dealing with so much more than meat sacrifice to idols or Paul's worthiness of a paycheck from the church. We're dealing with what it means to practically deny yourself, to take up a cross, and follow Jesus. Listen, we've got a lot of freedom in Jesus Christ. We've got a lot of rights, a, a lot of liberty. Praise God for it. But if you're not willing to lay aside that liberty, as the Holy Spirit would lead you, for the sake of the gospel, and for the sake of the kingdom of God, then really, what good is that liberty for you? What is important is less about what our freedoms are and more about how many we are willing to set aside to obtain the prize. The prize of fulfilling our obligation to advance the kingdom of God. 
Let's all lay aside something good and get something better. Let's run to win. Pray with me. Father, I confess that at times I think I can spectate this race of Christian life as a competitor. Your word this morning tells me that just isn't true. Father, work in me to press the urgency of Paul into my heart and fuel a fire in me to see your will be done. Father, let me know that no matter the cost, it is far better to see disciples made of all nations and to love my fellow brothers and sisters in a way that I can count them more significant than myself. Father, may you do this same work in all of us so that as a church, we can conform more and more to the image of your Son. We thank you and praise you. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.